coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. What are white people saying, Bill, behind closed doors? Because I can tell you what black folks are saying behind closed doors. What are, what are you all saying? Then I got to think about that and I got to step back and say, am I reacting to the color or am I reacting to the outfit and the poor judgment and taste that that shows for dress in society? And it's, it's crazy. Why would I feel more safer with a bunch of white guys in the woods than to be in the hood with people who look like me? Part of the divide about racial issues is that if people do not perceive themselves as facing racism, then they conclude racism isn't a real thing. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we come to you just saying thank you. As we look around and all the things that's happening in our country, we just say thank you for grace and mercy and understanding. Thank you for continuing to give us a platform that we could talk about common ground. We can let each and everyone express their own opinions, and then we can see where we can find some unity in all this. We're not trying to correct this person or correct that person. We're just trying to find truth in the midst of all the noise. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray and believe. Amen. Dearly Father, just uh, thank you for this week. It's uh, been beautiful weather here in North Carolina and the uh, Lord, uh, thank you for my friendship with Odell. Thank you for bringing Dr. Camp, who's our guest today, into our lives uh, through a mutual friend. And uh, we look forward, Lord, to hearing what you put on his heart to share with our audience. Amen. Amen. So, Bill, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good, Odell. You know, I went, I went deer hunting this week. Uh-oh, did you kill anything? Did you go hunting or killing? What did you do? Well, I, I took about four naps. Oh, man. I fell asleep in a deer stand. I, I got there about uh, 6, 630 in the morning before the sun came up and uh, saw the sun come up. Beautiful sunrise. And then the next thing I know, it was 930. I fell asleep and I suspect a lot of deer walked by me. And uh, so I figured, well, I'm done deer hunting in the morning. So I got up and went <laughs> into the lodge and everybody said, do you see anything? I said, I did. I saw a lot. The backs of my eyes. They said, you no. slept the morning? I said, I did. Well, you know what, you know, when you both have a passion for deer hunting, another passion that we have, Bill, is that for diving into difficult conversations. You know, we've had a lot of different um, things nationally as it relates to um, trials. We had the young man in Georgia, uh, mm -hmm. the 
the jury found the three assailants guilty, which which is just like for a black person, it's like, oh my God. You know, we had the other situation in Washington, correct? Uh, I think it was in uh, Minnesota or something, Minneapolis. Okay. That jury found the gentleman not guilty. And then we had the other one in Virginia where the uh, ruling was that the institutions itself, so Bill, are found guilty. It's a lot. It's so much going on and all this stuff about dialogue and race and, and you know, and my, my best friend is white. And your best friend is the good-looking black guy. What What do your friends say? What do white What do white people saying, Bill, behind closed doors? Because I can tell you what black folk are saying behind closed doors. What do, What are you all saying? Well, you know, the, the I went to the hunt camp was all white middle class guys. So uh, y'all had no black. So y'all y'all have no black people out in the woods to come hunt with you. No, not at all. In fact, uh, it's up in Madison, North Carolina. I'm not sure there's a lot of black people up there. Well, well, you know what? Usually I go hunting with you. I didn't want to be the black guy in the woods with a lot of white guys with guns when the verdict came down and somebody forget <laughs> that we're in a civil society and we need to talk. And all of a sudden, Odell looked like a deer. I looked like a bear. You know, I, I just yeah, I didn't need to be on that one, Bill. Yeah, I hear you. Well, you know, we went out there. There were, I think, five guys We hunted for five days. No one shot their gun once. There was no, I mean, we saw a deer, but there was nothing to shoot. So I said, man, this is like uh, Barney Fife. All we need is one bullet and just keep it on the side because we don't shoot anything. But we had some great meals, uh, great fellowship. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, we've been doing this about 15 years now. So it's saying it's, it's a core group. And then we bring in every now and then some other folks. So it was good. And I'm glad. Yeah, I, I'd be worried about you in the woods. There's, uh, we had one guy show up in the middle of the night redneck and uh we're thinking who is this guy because we're in the middle of nowhere and uh he thought we shot one of his dogs oh boy and what's, uh, a, what's bill what's a redneck i mean we hear about it what how does a white person define a redneck guy show up in the middle of the night with a obviously he had a weapon with him right oh yeah and he's mad because he thought somebody shot his dogs yeah uh, what 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 does and odell didn't answer the door right no, no, we wouldn't. Well, we might have sent you in the front there. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead, Bill. What's what's a redneck? And what was the conversation like with a bunch of old white guys in a room, uh, maybe a little adult beverage? What's the conversation on race and the status of race in America today? Uh, we didn't get into any politics to speak of. Uh, once in a while, it would drift into. But, you know, these are Trumpers and these are anti-vaccine guys. And, and they grumble because they had to do a vaccine and they did it because somebody had to go out of the country or something, you know, they got enough money. They can, you know, we, I was with the one fella and uh, he was looking at renting a house for his daughter and uh, I mean, uh, for a wedding. And he shared with us that, you know, they were doing the wedding plan and he offered his daughter to, Hey, you know, I'll buy you a house if you have a small wedding. Right. And she turned it down. She wanted a big wedding. So he was telling me about some of the stuff. Well, the tent, uh, they were could put a hardwood floor down. And he decided not to take that option. And you know why? Why? It's $100,000. Okay. All right. So I know who you were hunting with. You were hunting <laughs> with Daddy Warbucks. But does Daddy Warbucks have to worry about critical race theory or race dialogue or what happens and a black man getting shot by the police or law enforcement. What does rich white guys in the hunting club with an adult beverage worry about, if anything? You know what they say? 
when something like that comes up, they go, mm, mm, mm. that's all they say. That's mm, it, mm. Bill. They don't, they don't cross the boundary and let their feelings out. They hold them in, but you know, when they're going, mm, 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 there's something behind that. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to interpret what mm, mm, mm means, but you know, the good things about it is when you tell them, Hey, my best friend is black. Do you tell people, do you tell all the white folks, Bill, that your best friend is black and we got this podcast together? Or what do you do? What, what do you do? Absolutely. Bill? I tell all my Absolutely. people, I tell all my people, and they just look at me like, you keep hanging around the white them. people. You nope. know, let me tell you what they tell me, Bill. You no, keep no, hanging no, around no, all no. these white people and going in the woods with these white no. people if you want to. You know what That's I tell what them? Tell you know what I tell them? My what? best friend is a good looking black man. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I don't tell him he's a black man. He's a good looking black man. And do they ask you the question, or are they even concerned about why do we even do this? Why open ourselves up to all this criticism? Uh, that's not even the question, because you said all these are Christian guys. Who, well, all these guys go to church. Yeah. Well, you know, I played, I gave out some of our cards and I played the beginning of our podcast and uh, the first tease part and then the intro. And when I do that with people, they go, wow, that's really, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to this. So they're going to probably hear this podcast and uh, guys, I'm talking about you, <laughs> but I love you, know, you. We need to get into some deeper conversations at Hunt Camp. There you go. You know, maybe a little stronger adult beverage, just kind of loosen everybody up. Oh, you know, we we'll bring you and Dr. Camp in and, and just, just drop a couple cherry bombs and let it, let them go off and see how that goes. Right. Right. Dr. Camp. Well, you know, it's interesting. Our guest today is Dr. Camp and he is a expert audience. Uh, Dr. David Camp, he is uh, the president of the dialogue company. This is what he does. Me and Bill running our mouth, but this is the expert. So we're going to invite him in because, you know, Guys, a lot's happening out there. And Bill, I'm glad that I wasn't up there, and, and this is serious, that I wasn't at the hunt camp. And this gentleman who you describe as a redneck is all upset because he thinks someone shot his dog. And so he comes in and he sees me, Odell, black guy in the woods with a gun. I don't know how that would have went, you know, and I'm glad I didn't, but at the same time, things happen. Things happen. So, Doctor, Doctor, Doctor Camp, come on in and help us, please, because you're the expert, and we get caught up in things. And a lot of these things that's causing so much issues in our country right now happens on thirty seconds or something, an incident, just an incident. Help us out, Doctor. Yeah, Doctor Camp's uh, made a commitment to marshaling conversations to overcome divides between people that inhibit collaboration. And his education is—I was reading his education. This is one smart puppy. The, uh, he has gone, uh, he's been involved in the military, the White House, global corporations, international organizations, higher education, faith-based group, nonprofits. He's authored books. He's gone to Princeton, University of California, Berkeley, where he got his master's and his PhD. And uh, he's got his own uh, uh, website. In fact, he's doing a seminar tomorrow. Uh, and he does them on a regular basis. Uh, I, I, his, his website is www.davidcamp, that's spelled C-A-M-P-T.com. I'd encourage people to go check him out. And uh, we'll, we'll bring this website up again toward the end of the conversation. Dr. Camp, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I got to tell I you. I just want to tell them that you yeah. know there are black people in Madison. You said Madison, North Carolina, right? Yes. My dad 
is from Madison. Oh my goodness gracious! So, uh, so he, so there are black people around. I think I think Madison is about uh, is is only about ten percent black, but um, but sure, sort of Madison around. And 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 I'm surprised y'all didn't see that many deer because my dad lives. He 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 moved. He I grew raised in Detroit. He's part of that great migration of folks that went from the south to the north in the fifties, and he's also part of a part of a smaller smaller migration from the north to the south of black folks in the eighties and nineties. So he moved back here for his retirement. And uh, if you can feel free to come to Stoneville, where he lives right next to Madison and kill some deer that keep eating his garden. So you can feel, so you, you don't have to go out to those on no stand out in the country. You can just sit on our porch and he'd be happy for you to get rid of the deer uh, uh, near his house. Yeah, Stoneville has got uh, a little tiny town, but it's got great yeah. downtown. And it's got a couple of little decent restaurants, country restaurants. Right. And uh, one time we, we did a we did a big trip. We said, hey, we're going to go from Madison to Stoneville and have lunch or dinner. And we did that. And it was great. I think it was Sally's was the name of the place. There you go. There yeah. you go. But that's, so, that's it's, um, so it's great to hear that. It's great to hear that you had such such a good time. And it, it doesn't shock me at all, though, uh, that you asked Odell about whether they talk about racial issues. Because part of what we're grappling with in our society now, this has always been true, is that often people don't deal with issues that are not issues for them. And, 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 and but, but, work, but more, they don't think things are issues, not issues for them. So part of the divide about racial issues is that if people do not perceive themselves as facing racism, then they conclude racism isn't a real thing. And so it's not shocking to me that despite all what's happening in the press, that those gentlemen wouldn't be talking about that because they don't perceive it as impacting them. And, but, but, but also it's interesting that you said, Bill, about people go, mm, mm, mm. so they have feelings, they have perspectives, but there's also a disinclination to talk about it and to feel like this is, this conversation will go well, even among people who might have been in the same church, have the same political affiliation. It, it's a, it's a tense ground for people. So people don't bring it up. People don't have the skills of talking about it. And so part of what I try to focus on is, how do we talk about these issues in a way that's likely to be connecting and not disconnecting? Boy, that's that's terrific, because you're right. People do not want to get in that uncomfortable zone where somebody's going to disagree with them and be passionate about it. And then the emotions start and all of a sudden it no longer becomes a dialogue. It becomes confrontational. Or a diatribe. It becomes it yes. goes from it becomes a whole bunch of dueling diatribes as opposed to a dialogue. Yeah. That's really true. That's really true. So part of I think the critical factor to make that not happen. Um, in and I I this I I have a method for um helping people talk about these issues, but it's based on two principles. And one I might call the ABC principle, which is agreement before challenges. So basically, if you're trying to talk to somebody who has a difference of opinion, what you want to try to do is to try to focus on agreement before you focus on how you might want them to change. And, and, and this is not just true for racial issues. It's true for almost anything. But right? anybody who studies conflict resolution or hostage negotiation or you name it will talk, will, will tell you that it's important to create common ground. Y'all something y'all should know about. Yeah, we heard before about that. you. Uh, before you move to try to invite new thinking. So that's one thing. But the second thing is you want to shift the conversation from opinions and quote unquote facts to stories, right? You want to, you want to shift the conversational ground that you're learning from, from a facts and opinions to stories. So part of the, the, what I try to invite people to think about is ways that they can do that, even on tough topics to try to 
to uh, shift the conversation from facts to stories and have the other person go first, right? To ask people what their what their experience is and listen to that and try to feedback them, let them know you're listening before you establish agreement by telling stories. And that's well before you try to invite them to do thinking by telling stories. So there's a there's a there's a method that that people can take. And I try to teach that a lot. Well, let me give you an example. When I was driving in the car and they started talking about critical race theory while I was driving and uh, they started describing it to people in the car and uh, they they basically were going down the path that it's uh, making white people feel bad of what they did with slaves and that we we own restitution and, and that we're not we're, we're dehumanizing the whites. Um, that's my word. They didn't use that. Mm-hmm. word. But you're, right. you're, you're making the whites look wet less and and in the in the blacks higher or minorities higher. And, and they, it, it was it was it was not the correct uh, position. And my question to you is, OK, I'm listening to this. And when I got done, I said I asked him, I said, can you guys explain what critical race theory is? And, th- and that was even worse. So right. I didn't know how to engage them to bring them out of that into an environment that there was a dialogue and they could understand what really critical race theory is all about. Sure. Sure. Um, do y'all remember the movie Fight Club? That movie with uh, yeah. Brad Pitt in the 80s? Yeah. yeah. Remember how the, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club? Yep. The first rule of critical is talking about critical race theory. You don't talk about critical race theory. Right. So so uh, here's the core of that. Um, critical race theory is something that's been around for 40, 50 years in the upper levels of law school. And it was, a, you know, it's been around for a while. It's had some impact outside of that. But basically what happened a couple of years ago is that uh, an activist named Christopher Rufo, you can look him up, R-U-F-O, with the Manhattan Institute, he decided that this, um, it, it would be a useful wedge issue for people on the conservative side of the ledger to talk about this thing and he was going to rebrand it. And he's admitted to rebranding it on purpose. And he's his, I don't have the quote exactly, but he said, we're going to rebrand it and make it a toxic term to apply for all sorts of insanities that Americans don't agree with. So there's a purposeful effort to call, to label as critical race theory, all sorts of other stuff that don't have to do with anything with like understanding law and legal developments in policy school. So basically anything that had to do with um with one could argue with uh, acknowledging racism in the past or talking about potentially systemic issues around race he's going to label critical race theory and make that into make that uh, uh label that toxic so part of the difficulty in talking about critical race theory is that there's at least at the at most charitably there's two definitions there's a traditional what is missed like <laughs> classic coke and new coke at the at, this is the most charitable you could argue that one is a purposeful distortion of what it is you could talk argue that but, you know, let's say words change. There's at least two different definitions. So part of what you, or you heard was people responding to the rebranding of this by somebody who didn't like it. Right. So that's so that's one thing that you heard. So the reason I tell people the first rule of critical race theory, the talk about critical race theory, don't talk about it, is because if you have two different definitions of something and people have strong feelings about it, maybe that's not a productive way of having the conversation. Maybe a more productive way of convers- having the conversation is. Well, let's talk about what we want our, to teach our kids about race and racism. That's something that everybody has an interest in. Whether you think racism is a big problem or not a big problem, we all care about what do we teach our kids about race and racism. So, so, so I would just say that it, it's understandable that you teed that up because it's in the news. 
But if you're trying to have a productive conversation, you don't want to talk about critical race theory because there's different definitions and people have distorted either distorted or different views of it. You want to talk about what do we want to teach our kids about race and racism and what you don't want to teach our kids about race and racism. Now that conversation can be potentially productive, but you still want to think through how to have that conversation. So part of that conversation might need to be, well, what did you learn about race and racism that you've had to let go of, mm. right? I mean, everybody, here's, here's the good news about how things have changed in the past 40, 50 years. Everybody we know has a, has a grandmama who has racial views that were problematic. Like everybody, like, like, a, like a, my grandmama had a friend who used to, my, my grandmama's black, who used to tell uh, her friend, we would, you know, because she was close with this friend. And this friend with this, this friend of hers would say, you know, y'all shouldn't be out in the sun too long because you'll get too dark. And by the way, pull your lips in. Right now, I don't know if Odell, if you have any, if you have older relatives when you were a kid who had views like that, but I mean, and that's obviously that view is a reflection of white superiority thinking that is not unrelated to, I'm sure, Bill, you probably had grandparents, you had elders in your family growing up who had messed up racial views too. Amen. Right? Amen. So, so then part of the, uh, the benefit, the blessing we have now is everybody had elders a couple generations back with these messed up views. And so part of what is a useful thing from a conversational standpoint is to say, well, did you ever, did you ever learn things? You ever exposed ideas about race that you had to let go of, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody will have that. And that creates some level of common ground and shows that there's some level of progression and it's relevant to the topic of what do we teach our children, right? Because th that's what the critical race theory conversation is really about, was what do you wanna teach our children? So there are things that um, we all have that we've had to let go of. And maybe there are things that you learned that you wish you had learned earlier, right? That, that, that it cuts the other way too. There's things you learned that you need to get rid of and things you didn't learn that you wish you had learned earlier, maybe. But I'm just saying that the, a, a better way of trying to have a conversation about this topic is to, again, not focus on critical race theory and focus on what do you want the children to learn and then go to yourself. Like what did, what did, what did, what have I learned that I had to let go of? I'll say one more thing about that. I'm interested in y'all's response to that. Um, well, let me just stop there because I have an, a, another critical thing that I try to teach people when they're talking about critical race theory, but I'm interested in your reaction to what I just said. Hold that thought. Odell, why don't you go first? Because I do have some thoughts and reaction. Yeah, I, I just think it's one of those situations where the, the truth is the truth. Now, a couple of things Bill said. Bill said, well, they were very much uh, concerned in the backseat of the car. And, and for the audience, Bill, I don't think that they were the same group that you were talking about who was doing the hunting. I think you probably was going to dinner with someone. But the other whole piece that came up, Bill, was the reparations. And that's something that um, is very heated when you start talking about reparations for white people. I, I was in a uh, national show once and the guy said to me, uh, Odell, do you believe in reparations? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, uh, how would you work it out? I said, brighter people than me would have to work that out. He said, well, why should I, as a white person, pay you money as a black person and I have anything to do with slavery? And he said, it's just like, why should I pay for a hamburger that you eat that I didn't have? And I said, reparations for me, talking, talking about trying to tell a story, but I'm not as good as Dr. Camp. I said, reparations that we're talking about is not about white people. Reparations, in my mind, is talking about America. The America that we love, the America that I love, that has all the things that it promises. And if we say that America didn't hold up to its deal, that's one thing. 
But if you say white people, then that means you're telling me that America is not America. America is white people. And when the guy it was the national TV show and I made that statement, he got quiet because the question is, is America America or is America white people? And, and that's, see, those are the tough conversations that I love that we can have without so much energy. And that's where critical race theory comes in, because sooner or later, the whole idea of reparation has to come back up. And I know the fact that not all, but some, when you know history is interesting when the Civil War was over, uh, some slave owners, interesting enough, this is so interesting, they got paid reparations for the slaves they lost. And then when it was all said and done, it's like, okay, guys, we tried to overthrow the government. It's over. Uh, nothing to see here. You all going back, going back to the South and do whatever. And as slaves, my ancestors, let me just talk about my ancestors because I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina, and Abbeville, South Carolina. My ancestors got the hell beat out of them because when people lost the war and came back and folk really took away after a while when the um, troops left the South, we paid, man. My people, Jim Crow, we paid, and in some cases, we're still paying for that whole issue of what happened. And I would say, is that critical race theory or is that the truth? But again, now, the truth is three ways. It's his side, her side, and the truth. And I always says, the truth is always moving, always evolving. It's like a coin. Heads, tail, and that part that we pay not much attention to the one that rolls, because the truth rolls is ever evolving and everything else. So, Bill, that's a short answer to a long question about my thoughts. <laughs> well, it was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a Baptist pastor, so you got to get used to that. He gets there you go. He goes, but it's all good stuff. Hey, first off, Dr. Camp, thank you for sharing that. That was enlightening for me to hear that in, in a different way of thinking about uh, how to handle that situation. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking a minute here to hear our viewpoint, because a couple things really triggered with me, uh, as you were saying it, uh, where I grew up, it was pretty much all white. I, we didn't have any black people in town. It was about the size of high point, North Carolina, about 120,000 people. But there was a, a tremendous amount of ethnics, first generation Europeans, uh, Polish, uh, Ukrainian, Romanian, uh, Yugoslavian, mm -hmm. Germans, and they all had uh, derogatory names, nicknames. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we were kind of a mixed breed. So we didn't think of ourselves as like them. Mm -hmm. And uh, even anti-Semitic, uh, so you know, mm -hmm. it's that kind of thing. So as, as I reflect back, I don't use that today because I realized that that wasn't right. That, that was that was uh, making people into something they really weren't. Uh, and, and why were we doing that? Why were we doing that? That's a question I have. Why were we taught that? Okay. Now, mm -hmm. my parents didn't sit around and say, hey, that's a WAP or that's, you know, whatever derogatory name they had. Uh, but my grandparents spoke broken English. Uh, and they, uh, they, they came from Yugoslavia, first generation. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure somebody get, called them a derogatory name as well. Mm -hmm. I've never heard it. Uh, and the other thing that, that ha happened here and just recently within a year, just before COVID, I took this class called other voices. It's here in town and mm -hmm. it's hear somebody else's voice. And we sit in a circle and we have a, a facilitator like yourself and we generate conversation. We did racism. We did uh, uh, different sexual 
events and socialist uh, social issues, but we mm-hmm. did racism. That was the first one. And we spent three days on that. And uh, we, one of the things that word that came up was uh, white privilege. And we had a couple of fellows in there that had grown up, you know, with no running water, you know, you've heard all the stories, you know, boots sure. perhaps and brought them. So they said, we didn't have any white privilege. And, and it took us almost two days to get to the point that people understood what that meant. And somebody finally said, well, maybe we ought to call it white advantage. Cause as soon as you say white privilege, it sets off all these ringers, but we, we did have an advantage as a white person. I could walk into someplace and get an interview where someone that wasn't white like me couldn't do it. Yeah, I don't call it a white privilege. If if one of my uh, workshop participants said both the white and the privilege trigger people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, more useful to call it um, unearned racial advantage. Okay. So it's so it's great. It's it's too bad that it took you all two days to to get to that point. But it's good that you got there uh, because calling it that privilege makes you think of like, Velvet ropes and uh, and diners club cards and yeah. first class and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so so I think that um, it's good that y'all got you eventually worked your way past that. I do think that um, going back to Odell's point, I think that part of what lurks underneath this critical race theory conversation is what is what you is is the is anything old, and I think that that. Is that that so? Is anything owed from money monetary standpoint, and is anything owed from a moral standpoint? And so, part of what what you talked about, Bill, when you mentioned those gentlemen, was this feeling of makes white people feel bad, and that is related to what Odell talked about, which is this reparations question, and 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 it's understandable because part of what's uncomfortable is to think that there was this group level unfairness in the past that was big, that hurt people slash kill people slash dominate people's lives and and has affected the lives of their progeny, right? It's hard to think about that. So what do we do with that? How should we feel about that? How should we feel about what it needs to be done about that? So I think that that's, that is a sort of the lurking shadow issue that we don't want to deal with emotionally. And then thus, but because people, you know, I didn't do all that, as you, as you said, I didn't, I didn't do that. Why should I pay anything? Right. There's a, that's an understandable feeling. Um, and so part of what I think gets short-circuited is, uh, and the reason I said, the reason I said that it's important to have this conversation about what you were taught is because it makes it, it's, it's useful to talk about the progression over time in a way that's not threatening. So that's why I'm saying talk, have people talk about what did you learn that you had to let go of, because that ha- that allows us to have the beginnings of a historical conversation without people feeling inherently like they're going to be judged from the very beginning. They get to be, they get to be the heroes of their own story. And we all like that, right? By talking about how I am, uh, I'm less racially problematic than my grandmama. I get to be better than my, you know, I love my grandmama. I get to be, I, I get to represent progress. And we all like those stories of progress. So that's, so that is why I'm suggesting that people do that. But the other thing that I didn't get to, I'm get to now is that when I try to uh, coach people about how to talk about critical race theory, how to, how to transform this from the unproductive conversation that it starts out as to potentially, as I said, a potentially really good discussion, which is what we want to teach our kids about race and racism. Part of what I get, I try to encourage people to do is to talk about the way that the virus of white superiority thinking still affects them. I try to train people to learn how to say, I'm not a racist person, 
but I sometimes have racist reactions. And then to be able to talk about an example of that, because I think that we all, or some huge percentage, way above 95% of us, are subject to white superiority thinking. So I could, you know, I could tell you a story. I'm not going to take time to do it now. I could tell you a story about how I have criminalized black people in the past, how for, for no particular reason, I've turned black people into criminals in my head. Jesse Jackson talked about that in 1988. He has a, you can look up his quote. You look up, he talked about, it's a shame to walk down the street and to hear people behind you and then to turn and be relieved when it's a white person. Like he talked about, he said that in 1988. So here's the point. The point is that we all are subject to uh, the virus of white superiority thinking. And part of what has to happen is that we need to start being honest about that and, and telling each other stories about that that are personal. And because because this is the legacy of this all of this uh, all of this uh, uh, white superiority thinking that has been that has been a part of American culture. But part of the tragedy is that we don't like to talk about it. Like in my workshops, I, I, I do a lot of polling um, in my workshops, a lot of audience polling. In fact, I've I've written a book about audience polling. Uh, the book is called Read the Room for Real. And uh, if anybody's interested in how to use audience polling to make their meetings better, you can buy it on Amazon and join the two dozen other people who bought the book. But that's that's beside the point. The point, the point is, with our podcast, you're gonna you're gonna blow it off the shelf. Exactly. So the, the point I'm making is that in the, in the, in those workshops that I do, I typically ask at some point I ask people three questions in a row. I ask them, when was the last time? How many times in the last five years have you had a racially uh, biased reaction that you're not a, not proud of? And you get something that's a, sort of a range of responses all the way from never to frequently. And there's some you can see sort of the bar graph distribution. And then I say, how many times have you admitted that to a person you think of as an anti-racism ally? And then you can see, you can visibly see a shift to the middle away from the higher ends. And then I ask the question, how many times have you admitted that to what I call a racism skeptic? And by a racism skeptic, I'm talking about the 50% of white folks that think that racism against people of color is no bigger problem than racism against white people. And what you see when I ask people this question is another a shift further down to the never happened. What does that mean? That means that we all, many of us have these racially problematic moments but we don't talk about them. We have some sort of agreement with each other that we're not going to admit that. And so I think that part of our work is to start admitting that, which is why I am willing to tell a story myself about how I've criminalized black people and why I refer to Jesse Jackson. And again, I'm not, I'm not gonna press y'all right now to do it, but what I'm saying is that part of the, 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 the way forward is to start, is to have people start owning up to I'm not a racist person, but of course I have I have racially problematic reactions. And to, to, to take this sort of sting out of it so that the accusations of you're a racist, you're a racist. Well, of course, we all are affected by that. And, part, and, and, and so part of going back to the critical race theory thing, part of what I think has to happen, the next step after talking about our racially problematic training is to talk about how it still affects us sometimes. Mm -hmm. We all have an agreement not to say that, but that agreement is dysfunctional. Like it helps us not understand the way that we've made progress, we're better than our grandma, but we still ain't perfect. And so if we're gonna talk honestly about what we need to teach our kids about race and racism, then that needs to be part of that conversation also. Am mm -hmm. I making sense to y'all? Yeah, you do. And I got, you, you triggered on something that I wanna react to. Uh, you said white uh, superior thinking, superiority thinking. And, and I'm gonna give you an example. Uh, I was with a, a different group of folks and we were driving around someplace and out comes this kid with his pants down to his below his butt with his underwear hanging out, kind of looking, you know, like mm -hmm. I call, call it the hood look, but I, I don't know what you call it. And sure. you, you, you We've see all that. seen that. Yeah. And you see that in your first reaction 
is to go really negative on that particular race. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then I got to think about that and I got to step back and say, am I reacting to the color or am I reacting to the outfit and the poor judgment and taste that that shows for dress in society? Which one mm-hmm. am I reacting to? And a lot of times they, they don't see why they're reacting and they just attach it to the color. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're all, yes. I mean, we're all queued up to, um, to put people in categories. And then because of uh, both classes and cultural differences, you know, we're, we're programmed as human beings to divide the world up between us and them. But that's a, that's a core struggle. I mean, you know, y'all are, y'all are ministers. That's a core struggle of the human experience is uh, to, to look at ourselves as other than other people. And that, I mean, that, I mean, that's, a, it's not even like that's mammals, all mammals, mammals do that. Right. But as human <laughs> beings who recognize the, the universality of our common humanity, it's a particular, it's a spiritual struggle for us. And so part of what's happened in the U S context is that we've been deeply is we've been deeply taught it's been deeply ingrained in our culture to do that on a racial basis and so part of part of the reason for that question about what you learn that you had to unlearn is because it recognizes this is a deeply ingrained thing that we all have to try to get past and we struggle to do that more or less some of us struggle harder or, or or less vigorously and some of us are better than others but we all don't like to admit it and that lie about how we don't do that is part of what keeps the system keeps these things in place and some people like to stay in the spot they're at because it's more comfortable than to get out of. Well, why change? I mean, I, uh, those those people are inferior. Those people are lazy. I mean, it, there's a whole, you know, some people yeah. talk this stuff explicitly and they have, they have not really gotten past that, right? So, yeah. and, and, then, and then the way our societal structures work where certain people are not given an opportunity and then they conform to the stereotype you have about them. See, this, those, those people don't want to work, right? So, so these things become self-reinforcing, which, uh, which, which is why it's important to talk about them uh, and, and to do so in ways that are savvy. So the, the, so just to be clear, I would say one thing I know Odell wants to say something, the method I try to teach people in my project, uh, the White Ally Toolkit, and that's, that's, a, oh, that's another website that uh, just, just my name is davidcamp.com, but I also have a site called the White Ally Toolkit. Um, part of what I teach is this method I talked about where you, you calm down, you ask questions, you tell stories that you ask other parts of the stories, then you tell stories that show connectivity, and then you try to expand their thinking through stories. Well, that's a method I call the race method: reflect, ask, connect, expand. Right, that, that, and you can see you can see videos about that on my website. But it's a it's a conversational strategy that's designed to help people build more connectivity as opposed to division. You know, it's, it's interesting, Doctor, and thank you so much. Um, I used to be the good looking black guy, but on today's show, you're the smart black guy, smarter than me, but you have your PhD. I can't be the good looking one? I can't be the good looking one too? No, 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 no. Oh, you man, can't look, look at that. that. I gotta stay in my no, lane, no, no. I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. Um, if I ask you, if I ask Bill, if I ask myself, when President Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, how do we feel? And I would say to Odell that, during the inauguration, when he got out of the car, he was walking on the side of the car. I'm shouting at the TV, get back in, get back in. Today, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, who's the they, Odell? Where did that come from? Who's the they? Who's going to kill him? Why is they? And my day was white people going to kill you. They're going to kill you. 
because they don't want you president. It's like, that's my prejudice and bias inside of me. To your point, I have to work through that inside of me, but that's been a learned behavior. Because I was- So I want to support you and invite you going even deeper than that. Okay. So first of all, let's, 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 let's face the fact that um, there's a not small portion of people who think, who are willing to tell pollsters that uh, black folks, it's not a small portion of white people who think we'll tell pollsters that black folks are lazy, they're less intelligent, and they're morally uh, inferior. That's not a small number. In fact, if you look at the percentages, there are more, and by numbers, there's more white people who think that than the number of black people in the country. So you're, you're fearing, you, this, this fear that the white folks are gonna kill that man is widely shared. So you're not, so, that, so you're not alone on that. And I'm not saying that you don't have stuff around white people you need to let go of, but I would invite you to go deeper than that. And I would invite you to think about is not prejudice you have against white people, as important as that is. I would invite you to think, are there any prejudice I have against people of color, against black people? Because I think that because I think that that is more um, it's more powerful to talk about, because if you can admit that, if you can like I, I gave an example of times that I, and I, I didn't give it a long example, but I talked about crim me criminalizing, mentally criminalizing black people. What I'm saying is, and I talked about Jesse Jackson, if you can find examples of your own thinking like that. Right. And when you tell all the white people about that, you invite them to say, um, this is a real factor. You're not morally uh, reprobate for having these thoughts. Even black people have these thoughts. It elevates it to a system issue. So I would just say, yes, there's your anti your whatever uh, anti white thinking you might sometimes have. But I think more powerful from a persuasive standpoint is you talking about anti black thinking that you sometimes find yourself having. Because 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 we need on some level we need these prejudices to come out of the closet, right? And one way, and I think it's is terrible that maybe what has to happen for, to do that is when black people start talking about that themselves to invite to give room for white folks to start talking about that same thing. You, you're right because one of the things is we as black people, um, you said Odell, you were going to woods with six or seven white guys with guns, right? And you're the only black guy in the woods, and you feel more safer than going in the hood where uh, a lot of young black guys are getting killed. Because when you look at the homicide report, then the majority of people who are getting killed in Greensboro, North Carolina, are African-American right. males. But more disturbing that the majority of people who fingers on the trigger are black fingers. So right. you're absolutely correct. Because I, and it's, it's crazy. Why would I feel more safer with a bunch of white guys in the woods than to be in the hood with people who look like me? Well, Right. I mean, those people in the woods, unless something happens, like you're on their, you're in their group. Right. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm I no, mean, no, no, situation I, I unfortunate. Situation unfortunate. I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning whether it's unfortunate. I'm right. just saying that um, the good news is that the, the, the scenario that you posit at the beginning where you're, you're out there and who knows what kind of stuff rises up within them that, that, that turns you into a target is much less likely to happen. So that, that, and that gets to another point. And, and I want to, I know Bill, you said you asked some things to say, I just want to make this no, point. No, go, go One ahead. of the things that I think that is important for us to do as we try to advance racial discourse is to um, talk about the advances that have been made. So I don't know how old you are exactly, but you appear to, as, as handsome as you are, you appear to be old enough to remember uh, uh, remember the eighties and the seventies. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember that. And I remember there was a level of generalized resentment between white men and black men that no longer exists. 
And that the resentment was high enough that like, I remember one time here in Eden, North Carolina, where I live right now, where I was, um, this is near 1998. I was looking for like a bar to go to and I stopped in the gas station. I was, I didn't live here then. And I, I stopped in the gas station, a policeman at the gas station. And I asked a police, I asked the policeman, is there any bars I can go to? I just want to get away from my parents and have a drink. He said, well, there's a bar around this, around the corner, but um, I would advise you not to go there because uh, we both will have difficult evenings. Like, and so basically wow. he, he was wow. basically telling me that if I went there, there was a chance that just with me being there, I would generate, I would gin up a certain level of racial resentment from white men to black men and he would it would create a potential incident da- dangerous for him and a, and a dangerous for me and a headache for him. He wouldn't tell me that same thing. You know, I've been in that bar, right? I've been in that bar. So what I'm saying is that part of what I think doesn't happen in terms of racial discourse and people people on the on the left tend to not want to talk about the progress that has existed. I'll say one more thing about that. In New York City, in the confines of New York City, in the 80s, there were three different times in which there were essentially lynchings of black men. In wow. New York City. Right. So so people, people and by mobs, not by not hate, not hate crime, not hate crimes like a couple of people. OK, we're going to kill a Negro today. No, I'm talking about people who did not know each other in the morning, conspired with through some set of circumstances. One guy was like trying to he was trying to buy a used bicycle one, um, uh, and, and then he was caught in the wrong neighborhood and a whole bunch of people g- gathered and then he wound up chasing him across the highway. He died in the highway. Right. So th- th- that kind of thing doesn't happen now, like the, the, the spontaneously forming lethal white mob no longer runs your grandfather your, my great grandfather great grandfather worry about that so did yours my grandfather did my father did and i did in the 80s that no longer runs that's progress but people don't want to talk about that as a aspect of progress because they fear that if we talk about that then people are gonna take that and run with it and say there's no more work to be done hmm. and as john lewis once said when i was president with him uh I was I used to do these pilgrimages that he would go on every year. He said, the only thing that is as irritating as white people saying there's no more progress to be made is black people saying there's no progress that has been made. So part of what we have to do to expand our thinking, expand our discourse is to own up to things like there has been progress, but there's more work to be done. And I can see that in myself because I can see it in my family. I, I'm not as bad as my grandmama but I still sometimes have racist thoughts. We have to own both halves of these things in order to advance our conversation. You know, it's interesting. And then I'll jump out and Bill, but Dr. Kemp, you made a good point. Odell Cleveland, who's black, been black his whole life, who grew up dirt poor in public housing in Charleston, South Carolina, went through the whole gamut of being poor and black and a big, dark black guy where white folks would look and look afraid. And you go and you got into this thing called sports in America. In sports, white folks love you because now all of a sudden you have on this jersey with their team on it and all this kind of stuff. So you go through that, college, educated, successful, and still dealing with the issues that, okay, when I was playing sports, people were like, you know, won national championship, state championship. People were like, oh, yeah, you a leader. Get those guys going. But when I graduated and I wanted to be a leader in the boardroom, a lot of white people didn't see me as a leader in corporate boardrooms. Eventually, we got there. And now, yeah, I hang out with some of the rich and famous white people like Bill. But to say, Odell, you are one of them. You're in their group. I don't accept that. I think that a lot of at that level is still certain circles where Bill Black friend can't come with him. Now, you know, Bill may say, no, no, no. But I think it's certain groups that they don't want your good looking black friend, Bill, whether he loves to hunt or anything else. Now, on the other side of it, too, is that how do Odell leave the hood without leaving the hood? 
because that's important. And the other thing that I would ask you to uh, address is the whole issue that's been around forever, black men and white women. That whole issue why so many black men has gotten killed or gotten this or that. Because you talked about 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago from whistling at a white woman or a white woman doing something else and use the black man as a scapegoat when she said, well, this black Negro did it, then it wasn't even a conversation. So when you start talking about critical race theory, you talk about race and race relations. I love this conversation. By the way, I love this conversation. Well, so okay. we, we got to get to that, but we, we, we've crowded out Bill. And we want to okay. be nice. We want to be nice to the white man. Odell, let the white man say something. Yeah. You know, I was looking at this. I'm thinking I'm a minority two ways in this conversation. One color and second is political views. <laughs> I think I got two Democrats and one Republican and and uh, I don't mind that. I think that's healthy. The uh, man, there's just so many things you've triggered uh, to think. Say, say, say a couple of them. OK, one of them is, OK, I'm the old white guy that, and, and I look at the news and I see black on black killing mm -hmm. picture of the guy. He did this. They did that or robbed this. And and most mm -hmm. of the time it's 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 black. And so I. Immediate reaction is, oh, it's them. It's that that's what's wrong with those people. Yeah. Yeah. And as opposed to what are the dynamics that are going on for somebody to shoot somebody? OK, and kill somebody. There's a lot of dynamics that go into that. You just don't wake up and like you said, well, I got a gun. I think I'll walk. And now I know some gang people do that. I mean, that's there's part sure. of the initiation. But for the most part, you, you don't do that. So there's a whole set of circumstances. And, you know, uh, our uh, police chief here, police chief James, is going to be on our podcast. He's gone to the extent he says, you know, we've got to get these young people into jobs. And so he recruited uh, companies. He wanted to get 500 summer jobs for the kids when they got out of school. And he got like 1,500. And, uh, and companies picked up these kids. And they're starting, to, you know, trying to break the pattern that they're in to get them out of that. And uh, I'd like your reaction to that, both of you folks. Well, one of the things that we all got to look at is how do our perceptions get formed, right? So um, certainly there's uh, the, 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 the crime in the hood is an issue, right? Uh, as a general matter, of course, it is the case that people tend to commit crimes against people of their same race, no matter who that is, that tends to be true. But it's you know, certainly the case that there's a... Um, it, it, what we see on the news would tell us that there's a there's a problem with crime in the black community. So this so one question we have to think about like how does it how our perception gets shaped? One of the ways it gets shaped is there's crime more there's more crime in poor communities than there is in non-poor communities. And what happens is is that poor black folks live together, whereas poor white folks tend to live dispersed among other white people. So it isn't surprising if, if you think that, if you notice that uh, more, of course it's the case that poor people, there's more crime among people without resources. Well, given that black poor people tend to live together and white poor people tend to not live together, it's not shocking that given that there's more crime among poor people, it's gonna look like black crime visually. That's one thing. A second, but, but this is all in the context of how perception gets shaped. Like, I think if you were to look at um, these sort of mass shootings and look at the proportion of people of different age groups who are, are uh, white versus black, those probably are from a, you know, I think that there's a disproportionate portion of white folks doing those mass shootings, but that's not how we process it. Like, like we're not, we're not, we're trained to think of black people associated with crime. In fact, a lot of studies have shown, like if you 
the, the studies have shown, like you show people uh, a news report that doesn't doesn't either visually or list the um, the the race of the person. When people like um, people say, "What did you see?" They will put the person as black, even though the person wasn't black, right? Because wow. we're it's a script that we have about black people committing crime. So, so I gave you one factor that has to do with like the reality of uh, how crime happens and how our perceptions might be shaped by it. But there's also this overlay of we're used to seeing, we're used to attributing certain characteristics to certain people. And we will do that even if the, the data doesn't show that because we're trained to see things that way. So it's not surprising that um, when you see these news reports, it fits your script. Right. It fits it. And, and you go to what's wrong with those people. And I bet you that happens among the people who on your in the car that time or on the on the on the um, uh, in your deer and your deer hunting trip. And people don't want to talk about that. So you don't talk about it. You just go mm, 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 and don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. Mm. Good point. Good point. You know, we're getting near our end here. And a couple things I wanted to get in, Dr. Camp, I was looking on your website and uh David's most requested topics are transformation through dialogue, keys to conflict resolution, political polarization, unconscious bias, and microaggressions. Folks, I don't know about you, all those interest me. So if you get a chance, go on his website and sign up for one of his seminars, look at some of his YouTube. Oh, so nice. I appreciate you saying that. I knew just, I just wanted to say, um, I definitely think that, you know, given your common ground focus, I think we all need to think about like our polarization question because I, I and I, I, and I just want to say this, you know, it, it's y'all are uh, leaders in your communities. I think that we all need to be on the alert for what might happen in three years from now on the election. I think it's, it's really important that we start having conversation about what are the limits to our, uh, to political violence, because, I am not the only person who is fearful of what might happen after the 2024 election and the political violence that might come from that. And I think it is, is important that preachers, people who run civic organizations like Rotary, um, uh, Kiwanis, people like places like that, we need to start having conversations now about, we need to practice our conversational dialogue skills because if we could be headed toward a big civic cataclysm and we need that, that involves political violence. And so we need to start having conversations now about uh, what are the limits of that? What are our personal ethics about that? Because a whole bunch of people see this problem coming. You could look at whether it's Bill Maher on the one hand or Joe Scarborough on another or Robert Hagan. You look up an article by Robert Hagan in the Washington Post about, about um, from mid-November. People see a problem coming. People are organizing to essentially they, they think the last, the fair amount of people think the last election was stolen and people are now trying to put themselves in a position where they could, they could not, quote, unquote, not let it happen again. But really, that might actually mean making sure it doesn't happen again. And I'm saying we need to be thinking about the potential of political violence and using our organizations like civic groups or churches to start having the kind of a dialogue about um, how do we what do we do with political disagreement? What do we do when we think that the other side has done something wrong? What are our limits, given that we uh, we are trying to have a democracy that has some that is not riven with violence? So Dr. I just want to say to everybody, when you think about that, Dr. Camp, that's a great point, because our next guest after you is Congressman Ted Budd, who's running for Senate. And I just highlighted to ask him about that because uh, I was going to talk to him about January 6th. 
And, uh, he was in the chamber when he had to be shuffled away for safety. And, uh, but he didn't vote to have it investigated. Right. So what do we, so is that acceptable? Like, how do we, how do we think about that? Like, like, I, I think that's a really important thing to talk about. How do we, is, is there a level of political violence that's okay? You know, you, you see that um, Mr. Gosar issues, a, he, he creates a, a, a cartoon where he's slaying one of his colleagues. Is that acceptable? We got people, you know, is that we need to start having that conversation now. What are the, essentially it's a rules of war issue. What are our limitations as to what we'll do in pursuit of our political purposes? And, and, and what are our own ethical limits? We need to start talking about that because the, we're in the middle of the track. The train is coming. We're not doing anything about that. And we need people like y'all to start challenging your own side as well as the other side to can we develop the dialogue skills so this country doesn't come apart uh, if the people who think that the election was stolen last time and want to make sure that quote unquote doesn't happen again. We, we, how do we prevent that from causing violence? We need to start talking about that. Excellent. Excellent. You know, it's interesting when you say that, because in a lot of cases, I, for many of us, I don't think we realize that the country can come apart. How fragile is democracy? And more importantly, in Odell's perspective, that what does our enemies around the world say? Because if one's fighting themselves. They're fomenting the world, that. Listen, they're fomenting that. They want us to hate each other. Like, like, like as, as much as there are real divisions, let's remember the Chinese, the Iranians, the Russians, they are they are helping us come apart by creating a social media posts that are designed to outrage us and get us further siloed. I'm sorry, Odell, but I'm just saying, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something we all can think about and start talking about. And you know, the common ground is, in Odell's opinion, and I don't know your perspective or Bill's perspective, but the common ground is we all love America. America is America perfect, no. But I love America, I love Bill Goble. Bill perfect, no, Odell perfect, no. But we have these tough conversations and try to take some of the energy and the passion away from it to at least talk about it. Because who else that I know, if not like a Hanny and Cohen, we got each other. And we've had people tell me and Bill, hey, you all need to fight more. You all need to fight more. That's not what we do. <laughs> we don't need to fight more. We need to talk more. We need to communicate more. We need to dialogue more. We need to ask the questions. Because like Bill said, hey, you know, something happened on TV the other day. Uh, this guy went to high school and, and shot um, X amount of people. And to your point, Dr. Camp, you're like, well, what happened? Odell's like, I hope he ain't black. You know, I, I know you're like, mm -hmm. Odell, you should be ashamed of yourself. But I'm like, I hope the guy's not black. Not that I want him to be white. I just don't want him to be black. I don't want that bias, prejudice, and stereotype that a black guy going in there, shooting, killing, blase, blase. Bill, what do you think about that? Because th that's the type of things that I think about. Well, you know, I, the uh, you, you know, it doesn't occur to me that uh, all the mass killings were by white folks. Not all. It's not all, but but a lot of them, mm -hmm. the majority of them. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, if I see uh, a person from uh, an Iranian or uh, the Middle East, I immediately sometimes think terrorist, particularly if I'm in an environment where that that's honest could be. And, and say, okay, do I, what do I do here? And uh, particularly, you know, I, we were in Israel together, Odell and I, and, you know, you're at a kind of a high alert because it's suicide bombers and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they took us on a bus uh, and we had to get all of our Israeli uh, drivers and our interpreters and guides and security off. And we had to have Palestinians because we we're going into Palestine. 
And I remember getting on that bus and thinking, okay, we have Jewish Americans, we have rabbis, we have Christians. I said, this is, this bus is an ideal place to blow up or at least kidnap. And right. so I'm thinking, okay, maybe we'll go in and be incognito. We'll just slip into Bethlehem, see it and leave. So we get in there about 500 feet and I hear all these sirens. I'm looking around, what are all those sirens? Well, we got a police escort. So now we become real conspicuous and I'm thinking, holy cow, the last thing, I, you know, everybody's looking at us. Mm-hmm. We get there and they cleared out everybody. And then we walked in and uh, I was with Joshua Mingidi the rabbi and uh, he had a baseball cap on and we were being escorted in with guys with the Uzis and all that. And we were getting ready to go into church. And one of the security guards tapped him on the shoulder because I was standing next to him with the Uzi and pointed to his hat saying, you got to take your hat off. So he takes his hat off and he has a beanie on Jewish uh, mm-hmm. yarmulke. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, now we're really targeted. We left there and they took us to a couple areas and we stood there and talked in Palestine. And there's mm-hmm. this kid in the far distance on a double high steel fence and screaming, screaming and waving and screaming. And uh, so we got, we were talking about what this area was and how important it was. And I said, what's, what's the deal with that kid? And they said, oh, he probably lost a soccer ball and wants us to get it. So I started paying a little more attention and he was saying, F you Americans. Mm. And I go, holy cow, this is a 12 year old kid who's been right. radicalized. Right. And we're going to Bethlehem now. We're going to Bethlehem. We're common ground going to Bethlehem the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you can come if you want to, but it's, it's interesting that, and, and I laugh about this sometimes, in the midst of, I've been to Israel four times, four or five, I can't remember now, leading groups like this. And as much as they fight from time to time, and I get that, they have a good relationship on how we're going to do tours. You know, how are we going to do tours and tourist dollars? Because going into Bethlehem, Bill's absolutely correct, you can't go in with the Israelis bus or anything like that, but they have an agreement. They have common ground around, hey, these tourists are going to go into Bethlehem and come out safe because, you know, you thought we are some VIPs with all the police escorts right. and everything else. And they're just not trying to have, they're trying to not have an incident that's, not, that's all over that goes around the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so we can, so we can uh, find common ground when we want to, we can, to your point of, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because we can't destroy each other. What are we doing? And all these experiences with my beloved friend, as we go to Paris or we go just different parts of the country, people look at Americans differently. And I think a lot of Americans, we don't understand that when we go outside of America, people look at us differently. Hmm. You know, some yeah. good, some not so good. Yeah. Dr. Kemp, we're getting near the end. You, we always give our guests the last word. So, uh, you get the last word, Dr. Kemp. I think I really appreciate the time, the time you've taken to, uh, to talk to me today and uh, what you're doing is so important to focus on common ground. And uh, so good on you for, for doing that. I encourage people to um, uh, go to my website, uh, the White Ally Toolkit, which is really, I've really rebranded to the Ally Conversation Toolkit because, of course, we can all be allies of the fight against people being excluded. It's the same site. Allied Conversation Toolkit, White Allied Toolkit, the same site. But we all need to learn skills of dialogue, which is great that y'all are doing that uh, and modeling that for people. And I would just encourage people to um, to not run away from those hard conversations with people you disagree with, but again, again, transform them 
into conversations that are about your experiences and where you try to see where people are coming from. You try to see the common ground before you try to invite new thinking. I think we have conversations differently. We have the potential of reducing some of this division that we all don't like and that we all don't need. Amen. Well said. Well said. Dr. Camp, thank you for being on our show. Thank you. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.